the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. So, one more day of uh, boring questions read by Justice Roberts. Questions that have already been asked and answered any number of times, answered actually before they were even asked. The only question that matters is witnesses or no witnesses. That's decided on Friday. And uh, Chuck Schumer, after so much optimism earlier in the week, not expressing so, so much optimism yesterday. We've always known it will be an uphill fight on witnesses and on documents because the president and Mitch McConnell put huge pressure on these folks. But for four weeks, we've made the relentless. We've been, I've been every day, I think every single day, I have argued why we need witnesses and documents. And we have won over the American people. And so our Republican colleagues, at least some of them, realize that if they are to reject witnesses and documents, they're going against not just a small group or not just Democrats, but against the whole grain of America. And they know that they may be held accountable to that. So I hope we can get witnesses and documents. It's an uphill fight. Are we li- is it more like than not? Probably no. But is it a decent good chance? Yes. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Probably no, but yes. Okay, uh, Chuck, we got you, Pagliacci. You're not getting witnesses. Uh, and by the way, there's problems on the other side, too. There's divided opinion reports about uh, Democrat senators who might vote to acquit on one or both of the impeachment charges. Also, on witnesses, even uh, some uh, of the Democrats who are allied on witnesses aren't allied on who should be allowed to be called as a witness. Joe Manchin on Morning Joe. Is this a constitutional trial or a political trial? Is Hunter Biden a relevant witness, Senator? Uh, you know, I, I think so. I really do. Oh, I don't have a problem there because this is why we are where we are. Now, I think that he could clear himself of what I know and what I've heard, but being afraid to put anybody that might have pertinent information is wrong, no matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. And uh, on the witness, the number one witness that Democrats want to call, that would be John Bolton. The president tweeted out yesterday an interview that uh, Bolton gave about uh, Ukraine uh, with the caption, Game Over, John Bolton on the president's discussions with Ukrainian President Zelensky. I will be meeting President Zelensky. Uh, He and President Trump have already spoken twice. Uh, uh, President called to congratulate President Zelensky on his election and then on his success in the parliamentary election. They were very warm and cordial calls. Uh, We're hoping that uh, they'll be able to meet in Warsaw and have a few minutes together uh, because the success of Ukraine, uh, maintaining its freedom, uh, its system of representative government, uh, a free market economy, free of corruption, uh, and dealing with the problems of the Donbass and the Crimea are uh, high priorities here, obviously, but high priorities for the United States as well. I don't know if it's exculpatory on the issue of uh, the, uh, John Bolton disagreeing with 
something the president may have said or attempted to do with Ukraine. I don't know if that interview is exculpatory, but it is interesting. It certainly doesn't uh, convey someone who is uh, highly well, highly concerned about how uh, policy is being pursued with respect to Ukraine, about how uh, aid is being funneled or not being funneled. It doesn't strike me as this is somebody who is particularly perturbed with the president at the time, at least. In addition to that, perhaps even more damning, since John Bolton is the new uh, hero, uh, hero of the left, <laughs> some of the things Adam Schiff has said about John Bolton previously before he became uh, their desired star witness number one. Uh, Schiff, just last year on the on the occasion of John Bolton being nominated to be President Trump's national security adviser, this is what uh, Adam Schiff had to say about John Bolton on Rachel Maddow show. Well, I think Bolton is not only a bad choice, uh, it's honestly difficult to consider a worse choice. This is someone who's likely to exaggerate uh, the dangerous impulses of the president towards belligerence, uh, his uh, proclivity to act without thinking, uh, and uh, his, uh, his love of conspiracy theories. Theory, uh, theories. Um, and I'll you know, just add one data point to what you were talking about earlier. John Bolton once suggested on Fox News that the Russian hack of the DNC uh, was a false flag operation that had been conducted by the Obama administration. Uh, so you add that kind of thinking to Joe DeGeneva, uh, and you have another big dose of unreality in the White House. Unreality? Well, boy, that doesn't sound like somebody that uh, could be uh, seen as a credible witness, does it, House Manager Schiff? Well, the good news is what Chuck Schumer conceded, which is highly unlikely that we're going to get witnesses, much more likely that we're going to bring this to a expeditious end and a vote, which will be to acquit, before the weekend is out. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jeff Shepard. He was deputy counsel on Nixon's Watergate defense team. He's also the author of The Real Watergate Scandal, Collusion, Conspiracy, and the Plot That Brought Nixon Down. Jeff Shepard, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you, Dan. Uh, do you think uh, Republicans are making the right call here as it pertains to, to witnesses, if that's, if that's indeed how it goes down? Yeah. Yes, I do. But first, let me compliment you on your summary, Dan. I thought it was right on and uh, Thank you. much easier to hear your summary than to watch the drip, <laughs> drip, drip of Q&A. I think the American public is tuning out of the actual trial. They're no fun. It's not drama. It's only moments, and you can catch up, you know, in a very, very brief time. Uh, I, I think the witness issue uh, is like the squid spurting ink. Uh, they know the Democrats know they're going to lose. They want something to complain about that they would have won but for no witnesses. This is just like when uh, uh, Trump won the election, and you talk to Democrats, and they say, well, but he lost the popular vote, as, as if that was the criteria. And they're just... They're trying to come up with something. If, if we let witnesses in, which would be terribly disruptive and, and unproductive, then they'd say, we didn't let the right ones in. You didn't let enough in. They're going to complain until the last dog dies. And their difficulty, our difficulty, is in the Senate, unlike the House, where they just ran roughshod over us, in the Senate there's a referee, and the referee is the Chief Justice. And if you recall, this is the chief justice, and I don't mean to dump on him, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer, who said there are no Obama judges. So one of the things he's going to do is lean over backwards to try to be fair. 
and not appear to be a Republican appointee. And it puts him in an awkward position, and it puts the rest of us in an awkward position. But I think it's all going to come to closure come, come uh, Friday. They'll be complaining, but I think it'll be over. And the, the histrionics in response to Dershowitz's whole sort of public interest, national interest conflation – uh, this is it's exactly what he presented when he, it was his turn for opening slash what would probably be closing arguments. There's a, there's nothing new here. And he, he qualified. Uh, obviously, the quid pro quo, if the quo was a criminal act, then that's not in yep. the public interest and that's not in the national interest. And that would be impeachable. All he was saying is you can't impeach a president because he has uh, multiple motives. Uh, one may be yeah. the national interest and one may be his own electoral interest. And how do you separate the two? And you're going to crawl inside the mind of every federal elected official, every president, and figure out if there was any political yeah. motivation and then hold that person up for impeachment. Then everybody is going to be subject to yeah. impeachment. We, set, we spent weeks at the beginning of law school talking about intent and punishing intent. A guy who runs the red light, he's just as guilty whether he has an accident or not. A man who shoots at somebody, he's just as guilty if he hits the guy and kills him or, or misses. And, and Dirk was going on and on. We really ought to punish intent and not outcome. And then all of a sudden he goes on to other topics. And we say, well, wait a second. You were convincing us our entire criminal law is wrong. And he said we can't sort out what's in the mind. We have no, no understanding, no proof. So our whole system is based on outcome. And that's kind of the same argument that he was making yesterday, 50 years later. Uh, was there any uh, anything in the uh, case presented by the House managers or the questions that were put to defense counsel yesterday that you find problematic for the president or for the defense team? I, I don't think so, Dan. Uh, uh, from the beginning, they haven't had a case. The, 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 they're trying, you know, the, the accusation keeps shifting uh, almost weekly. Oh, forget all that. Forget Russian hoax. Forget everything else. Now we've really got him. Now we've got this Ukrainian call. I mean, it's, it's nothing there, and they're getting more and more desperate to, to impeach a president of the United States for abuse of power. When this is the abuse and obstruction of Congress, it was ludicrous when they did it. I, I thought when Nancy Pelosi uh, didn't forward the article, she was going to stop it right there. He was going to say, well, you know, he's been impeached and we just aren't we aren't going to forward the articles and we could argue about it till the next election. Do you think that but now uh, they're yeah. in it and they, they can't unjump. They can't say, oh, we didn't impeach him. Oh, we meant something else. Oh, we're still waiting for Mueller. Oh, we want the grand jury testimony. And, 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 and uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, final curtain's coming down. He is Jeff Shepard, deputy, former deputy counsel on Nixon's Watergate defense team, author of The Real Watergate Scandal, Collusion, Conspiracy, and the Plot That Brought Nixon Down. Jeff Shepard, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Well, I've been in the right world, but seems like wrong, 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 wrong. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Let's go to the from the virus that's infecting our politics, that's an impeachment trial, to the uh, virus that is uh, metastasizing into a pandemic in China, of course, talking about the coronavirus. There's a few matters here to discuss embedded in this. 
uh, one is how much of a threat does it really pose to America? That certainly this is a threat in China now with uh, infections in every province, and you've got uh, Google shutting down its offices in Beijing and Hong Kong, and uh, U.S. carriers canceling flights in and out of mainland China. Uh, the pictures, I mean, and you know, they're somewhat silly pictures, but you also appreciate people's concern, people trying to get out of China, and you see pictures of them uh, wearing water bottles on their heads over their masks, and uh, I, so I saw a picture of a, a woman with, like, a plastic tarp over herself and another plastic tarp over her the stroller containing her child and, and all sorts of things. So there's certainly a lot of uh, understandable concern. But then, of course, there's the media hype that makes some of the fears less grounded, less rational. Uh, I thought Dan Henninger had an interesting piece in The Wall Street Journal. The Wuhan coronavirus is a metaphor for two political ideas that are incompatible with the realities of the modern world. The Communist Party of China and American isolationism. Yeah, it's very interesting. So the the centrally planned response to this virus, uh, slow it has as it has been, uh, he uh, goes on on the first part of that. The Communist Party of China, in an epitaph, if an ever uh, if ever an epitaph is written for the People's Republic of China, it may be Wuhan Mayor Zhao Jinwang trying to apologize for delays in informing the public about the coronavirus. Quote: If in the end you say someone has to be held accountable, you say the masses have opinions then we're willing to appease the world by resigning, the mayor of Wuhan said. But as Henninger writes, the Chinese people know they are not allowed to hold anyone in Beijing accountable for the virus or for the sickening pollution of their air and water more generally. Mr. Zhao made clear who calls the shots, quote, as a government official, after I get this kind of information, I still have to wait for authorization before I can release it. Yeah, Uh, centrally planned systems, not particularly nimble, Uh, a Disturbing reminder in the case of uh, this sort of uh, virus. Uh, Henninger goes on to say the communist control model in recent years arrived at its beyond Orwellian endpoint in the Chinese region of Xinjiang with the creation of a high tech, always on surveillance state put in place to contain the area's Uyghurs. And of course, uh, the persecution of the Uyghurs, the functional concentration camps in which Uyghurs have been placed by Chinese communists not to mention what's happening on the streets of Hong Kong, and now this. The, uh, the spectacle and symbolism of planes evacuating four nationals fleeing a Chinese bat-borne virus represent an unappealing future. China has to change, but how? The uh, U.S. president's opposition won't want to hear it, but Mr. Trump's trade negotiations with China may offer a rough model. Despite global agreement that China was cheating, it was also clear that dealing with it inside the framework of a traditional 20th century diplomacy was simply too slow, archaic, and out of sync with the tempo of the modern world. The alternative Trump model was to lean in and not let up. The real problem is bigger than one trade deal or this virus, but the coronavirus has focused mind. This looks like a moment for the U.S. to enlist its allies to lean in again and not let up. Publicly support Hong Kong, a model for what China indeed should be. Uh, interesting, and and of course, it's a recognition that uh, there's no Fortress America doesn't work in the the modern world. Larry Kudlow was on CNBC yesterday talking about this in the context of 
the impacts he expects, the positive economic impacts he expects from the USMCA, that trade deal, trade deal formally inked yesterday. But he was asked about uh, the potential impact of the coronavirus, and uh, he went beyond a GDP impact, which he doesn't expect to be too substantial, to uh, the import of what America is trying to do to help the Chinese and to quell the spread of this virus. Um, very little, as Jay Powell said today, a minimal impact. Uh, this is a Chinese pandemic. And, and by the way, I, I want to note, we, we just had an Oval Office meeting covering a number of subjects, including this one. Uh, at China's invitation, uh, the U.S. Uh, Secretary Azar is sending our best CDC experts over to China to work with the World Health Organization uh, and the Chinese government. Uh, that's the first time we made that decision. We're happy to do it. It's part of our engagement with China. We, we, you know, we, want, we want to help out in any way we can. We have a lot of very smart people that know how to deal with these public health issues. So we are going to send over a, a batch of uh, CDC uh, experts. Regarding these GDP estimates, David, I, I don't want to go there. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for China. The issue is that, you know, Chinese got the buy. This is not going to have any major impact on the United States. I go back to, I guess it was 2003, uh, the SARS epidemic. There's always a lot of pessimism and so forth, but it had virtually no impact on our economy. And just uh, since we're talking about Cudlow, let's take a quick tangent and also uh, play his remarks with respect to the expected economic benefits from the United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. Uh, the International Trade Commission, the upper boundary of the potential for economic growth, David, 1% uh, GDP uh, increase, uh, probably about 600,000 jobs, probably $100 billion of new investment. These are hard things to model and yeah. estimate, but they made the estimates. I'm just saying, from the standpoint of remedying some unbalances, in the manufacturing sector and adding uh, new economy breakthroughs uh, in tech and elsewhere, this is going to be a tremendous deal. Okay. It is pro-growth. Now, back to the uh, danger of the coronavirus. Again, it's a mutation uh, of SARS. So where, as many epidemiologists have said that you've probably seen in various news outlets, still getting a handle on it. But there was a pretty good interview uh, that was uh, provided by a uh, epidemiologist in uh, Pennsylvania uh, who uh, talked about um, uh, the, uh, the the symptoms, the severity, the, how it spreads, what to do uh, uh, in terms of how deadly is coronavirus. Uh, China confirmed this week that 132 people in the country had died from the virus. One sick has a person has a one to three chance of dying from the virus. So fairly infinitesimal risk of uh, of death if you're an otherwise healthy person. Uh, he, he asked is, is about uh, its deadliness with respect to flu. Flu has killed hundreds of people in Pennsylvania alone during a bad season. Influenza is caused by a known virus, and there's a vaccine to guard against that. There's been a lot of attention to coronavirus because it's a new mutation, and doctors and scientists are still trying to understand how to treat it and prevent it. So if you develop a fever, cough, shortness of breath within 14 days, uh, of travel from China or if you've had close contact with someone who recently traveled from China and is presenting those symptoms, your doctor will work, can work with CDC to determine if you need to be tested. CDC has this diagnostic test, uh, which requires a sample, takes a couple days to get the results back. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so you know, that's the process to follow in order to, to identify it. And 
And then, of course, the arguments are now for uh, seeing if uh, the private sector, China, uh, can innovate here with respect to developing uh, a diagnostic test that could be distributed more ubiquitously to healthcare providers around the country so the testing could be done more quickly, the results more quickly, and then action taken more quickly. This is the Dan Prof Show. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. It is National School Choice Week. You had uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and Vice President Mike Pence in Wisconsin earlier in the week rallying with uh, a thousand or so school choice reformers uh, in a state that was uh, really at the forefront of school choice back in the early 90s with uh, Governor Tommy Thompson and Bipartisan support for it, along with uh, Wisconsin, excuse me, Milwaukee City Councilwoman Democrat named Polly Williams, uh, one of the first uh, big city voucher pro opportunity scholarship programs in the country in Wisconsin. So uh, where do we find ourselves this school choice week when it comes to uh, K through 12, particularly in our urban centers? Very interesting study from Brightbeam, which is a uh, nonprofit of uh, that focuses on education reform as well. The Secret Shame, just posted, and I'll tweet it out at Dan Prof Show. How America's Most Progressive Cities Betray Their Commitment to Educational Opportunity for All. Uh, what did they find? Here are the top lines of the study. We found uh, that in the most, progressive, the, the most progressive cities, most progressive cities, Democrat-controlled cities, Students face greater racial inequity in achievement and graduation rates than students living in the nation's most conservative cities, including uh, controlling for population size and other variables. Progressive cities, on average, have achievement gaps in math and reading 15 and 13 percent uh, percentage points higher than in conservative cities. Achievement gaps meaning between minority students and white students. 15 and 13 percentage points higher than in conservative cities for math and reading. In San Francisco, for example, the study finds 70 percent of white students are proficient in math compared to only 12 percent of black students. 58 point gap. Proficient in math. In Washington, D.C., 83 percent of white students scored proficient in reading compared to 23 percent of black students. In contrast, three of the 12 most conservative cities they looked at Virginia Beach, Anaheim, Fort Worth have effectively closed or erased the gap in at least one of the academic categories that was examined. And, uh, you know, I mean, this just squares with what we've known to be true for a long time. That in big urban cities that have been dominated by one party and the philosophy of central planning when it comes to K through 12 education rather than a competitive model. Black and brown students are disproportionately negatively impacted. These are systems that discriminate against people based on their household income and their address. And so 60 
plus years after Brown versus Board of Education, you have school systems in places like San Francisco and L.A. and Chicago and New York and Dallas and Atlanta, places dominated by Democrats who repeat with religious fervor that they exist in public office. They exist in their professional lives to close those gaps, to affect racial equity, to fight for social justice, to empower families with opportunities, to level the playing field for black and brown kids. And what are the results? All that rhetoric, 60 years of rhetoric, and in places like my hometown of Chicago, you have a pre-Brown versus Board of Education school system. In places like Chicago and a lot of those other big cities that I've mentioned where you've had one party and one philosophy dominate for a half a century to a century, you are living with, we are living with, separate but equal school systems, separate but equal, quote-unquote, right? That uh, specious mantra that was overturned by, by uh, Brown v. Board. And when we come back, I want to make this more concrete for you. There's a very good piece in Colette.com about two schools in Chicago that really brings home what we're discussing and you know, gets beyond the data, but includes the data. And it's also a microcosm of what's happening, not just in Chicago writ large, but in a lot of those other cities around the country that I ticked off, dominated by one party and one mentality. More on the Dan Prof Show right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking about National School Choice Week. And as I uh, teased in the last segment, I want to uh, go through this piece at Colette.com. Excellent piece from Tom, uh, Tim DeRoche, who's a author and consultant based in L.A. More than 20 years of working with public school districts, charter schools, nonprofits focused on educational justice. And uh, he's got a book coming out on the topic that we are discussing and he uses two grammar schools in Chicago to underscore what I was just discussing, to underscore what the reality on the ground is in big urban centers that have been controlled by one party and one mentality for way too long. And as the great Austrian economist von Mises, Ludwig von Mises, observed, he who wants to improve conditions must present a new mentality, not merely a new institution. The left is very good at uh, more agencies, more bureaucracies, a new institution. Not so good at a new mentality, despite generations and generations of failure with 
one philosophical approach. So did the Chicago example. Nothing about North Avenue in the Old Town neighborhood of Chicago feels like a political barrier or a sociological fault line, but it is. If you stand at the corner of Larrabee and North Avenue, there are two public elementary schools within a mile of one another. Both are operated by the Chicago Public School System. Both are governed by the decisions of the Board of Education. Both are funded by Chicago residents who pay property taxes directly into the school's general fund, school system's general fund. The two schools, if you live north, you go north of North Avenue, this fault line. You go to Lincoln Elementary. If you live south, you go to Menear Elementary. Now, before I get into um, those two schools, there's a real uh, sad irony here. Menear Elementary is named for George Menear, who is an abolitionist. And in the 19th century, he operated one of the stations uh, on Harriet Tubman's Underground Railroad in Chicago. And now Menear Elementary is 96 percent black students. Um, and it is a school a school in a school system that is failing black students that is discriminating against black students named after an abolitionist who operated one of the underground railroads stations. Remarkable, sad. Here's the difference between Lincoln and Menear. at the end of the 2018, 2019 school year, not a single eighth grader from Menear was proficient in reading, not a single one at Lincoln, 81% of Lincoln eighth graders proficient grade proficient in reading. 81% at Lincoln proficient in reading, not a single eighth grader proficient in reading at grade level at Menear. The schools are a mile apart, one mile apart and worlds apart based on an artificial boundary drawn by the city enforced by state law. A wall, if you will, between richer and poorer, whiter and blacker, truly. For example, one uh, family that lives in the Lincoln Elementary School District, he and his wife had the, uh, this guy's name is Brian Speck, uh, they were looking at a home that was in the Menear School District that was $250,000 cheaper. But a uh, private school in Chicago can run up to forty grand a year. So they pay the extra two hundred fifty grand for the home in the Lincoln Elementary School District so their kids could attend a quote-unquote free public school. But you had to have the $250,000 increment to buy a home in the district to get that free quote-unquote education, quote-unquote free education. It's remarkable. Again, the demographics here. Meniere's kids, 96% black, 4% Hispanic, 93% low income. Lincoln kids, 63% white, only 14% of the students are low income. But it's not race, as the author describes, keeping kids out of Lincoln Elementary. What keeps them out is the artificial boundary that was created by those in charge of Chicago and, by extension, Illinois, who have been in charge of Chicago for 100 years, been in charge of the school system for 100 years and preside over a school system that prevents black kids from attending Lincoln School. Isn't that something? And uh, again, I point out the author writes, this isn't a problem unique to Chicago. We've identified many similar school pairs in cities across the United States. One elite public school, one failing school, separated by nothing more than an arbitrary line drawn by a school district bureaucrat. Brooklyn, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Seattle, Dallas, Denver, 
Philadelphia. It's an American phenomenon. Uh, the author called Lincoln Elementary in Chicago, pretending to be a parent moving to Chicago. I asked the staff member who answered the phone how we could get our children into Lincoln. It's a neighborhood school, she told me. It's an attendance area. So if you want your child to go here, you have to move within the boundaries. And if we get a house within the boundaries, you're, automat- uh, you're, and, and you're automatically in. If you get a house within the boundaries, you just have to show proof. And uh, the... Uh, the author poses some good questions to try to analogize, uh, to analogize this in the mind. Tim DeRoche asks, imagine you show up at a nearby emergency room with a broken arm and the nurse at the front desk asks for proof of your address before taking you in for an x-ray. Imagine you walk into the neighborhood branch of your city's library. You sit down at a computer. A librarian comes over to check your ID. Sorry, she says, I know you live in the city, but you're signed to a library two miles away. You have to leave. Imagine that there's a fire in the neighborhood and the Station 22 fire truck won't water down your home because the truck's onboard computer shows you're just over the line, zoned for Station 44. Imagine all that. Sounds silly, doesn't it? Well, why is it any less silly when we do it for K-12 education? The good news is in Chicago, like a lot of other parts around the parts of the country, there is a school choice movement that's afoot thanks to a tax credit scholarship program but it's not getting enough of the kids out fast enough because uh, as uh, much as we're supposed to be patient as another generation of kids is left behind, uh, they're only, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old once. The lack of sense of urgency is almost as criminal as the actual performance of the system. So is that the kind of school system you want to tolerate in the big cities around the country? In a party to which you affiliate Democrats, pre-Brown versus Board of Education school systems like in Chicago and all those other cities I mentioned. Criminal. And you call yourself a social justice warrior and you say you're interested in equity and you prattle on about educational opportunity and you content yourself with saying you're anti-discrimination. Well, you're none of those things if you tolerate school systems like this. This is the Dan Prof Show. Listen, the more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, sticking on the theme of school reform, since it is school choice week. I know it wasn't uh, popular when uh, it was Tim Tebow as, a, as the face of homeschooling. You know, because he's a devout Christian, and so the media couldn't amplify that very much, couldn't celebrate that too much. Maybe when it comes to homeschooling, which is another element of the school reform movement, no question, becoming more and more popular in more and more states because of exactly what I was describing the K-12 through systems are like in the previous segment in big cities. How about when it's Billie Eilish, the uh, newly minted Grammy Award winner, Best New Artist, Album of the Year, Song of the Year? Billie Eilish and her brother were homeschooled. Born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, Eilish told uh, the music magazine Pitchfork that she views traditional K-12 education as the equivalent of being forced to eat vegetables. Quoting Eilish, I learned how to do math by cooking with my mom. I learned like how to build stuff from my dad. What I'm saying is I learned stuff in life. I feel like when you're sat down and somebody's like shoving things in your throat, you're not going to want to eat them. Okay. Her uh, older brother, who is a, a collaborator in her music as well, Phineas O'Connell is his name, 
He said, uh, being homeschooled is all about self-discovery. It's something I've really enjoyed and thrived under. I'm not at a high school where I have to base my self-worth off what other people think of me. I have to think, what would I like to be doing? How would I like to be as a person? I think that's an enormously positive thing. Mom, Mom Maggie, uh, she had this to say. Everybody's always out doing things, traveling, going places, meeting for classes, organizing field trips. It's like going to college. You take what you want, where you want. You find what you need. Homeschooling allows us to let them do the things they really love to do and not have a giant academic schedule on top of it. Um, so it's, you know, it's right-sizing your child's education for your child. And uh, there's a good piece also by J.D. Tusiel in uh, Reason magazine on the very topic on the occasion of School Choice Week. He's out in Arizona with his kid, and his kid is gifted. And he writes, if we had to rely on public school offerings for our rather partic- particular needs, my son's education would be at constant risk of shifting political winds. We'd have to worry about expending energy and advocacy rather than learning. But we don't. We have the means to ignore government institutions and pay for what we want. And it also helps that Arizona is hospitable, has a hospitable school choice environment and uh, homeschooling is encouraged. They don't homeschool their son, but uh, they found the right fit for him. He is enjoying an accelerated curriculum, hangs out with kids with inquiring minds who prank each other with homebrewed malware and things that he likes to do. He's challenged by peers who are an awful lot like him. And he says of the, his son's school, it's not for everybody, but it's not supposed to be. It's just supposed to be right for the kids at whom it's targeted. The same can be said of the many uh, of many of the nearly 35,000 private schools in the U.S. serving almost 6 million kids. They cater to special needs, special interests, specific educational philosophies, particular religious affiliations. The families that make such use of such schools chose them because they're a good match and they're willing to pay for what works. Americans would be well served if the powers that be surrendered their claims on children and their demands for all of us to support government institutions that just don't work for many of us, regardless of the form those choices take. Indeed, we would be better served. This is the Dan Prop Show. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. You can follow us danproftshow.com on Twitter at Dan Proft Show as well as at Dan Proft and uh, Congressional Democrat death throws today. This was this was something. Chuck Schumer uh, apparently uh, brought Lev Parnas as his guest today. And uh, Ted Cruz tweeted out about this, uh, that uh, Lev Parnas was told he wouldn't be allowed in the gallery with his ankle bracelet. So he he didn't try to go into the gallery. So he was there to be a guest. I guess, I don't know, it's strangely inappropriate that somebody under federal indictment would be a guest of Chuck Schumer. Uh, but uh, <laughs> not allowed into the gallery to have this uh, State of the Union quality moment for Pagliacci because he's got an ankle bracelet on as he's awaiting trial. Just beautiful. For more on the topic of uh, impeachment as we're winding down to the big question that's hopefully answered in a way that brings this to a quick end before the weekend, uh, as well as a little bit of a discussion of Iowa caucus on Monday. We're pleased to be joined by Stephen Hayward, senior resident scholar at the Institute for Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley. 
senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute in San Fran and contributor of PowerlineBlog.com. Stephen Hayward, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, hi, Dan. Good to be with you. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us. And, and so, you know, as we uh, await the adjudication of the only remaining question of interest, witnesses or no witnesses, what's your sort of top line takeaway from this impeachment trial over the last uh, several weeks and, and the investigation several months prior to that? <laughs> well, I don't think my top line or bottom line differs much from an awful lot of other people. I mean, even people opposed to President Trump understand that this is pretty much a frivolous impeachment charge brought purely on a partisan basis on a very rushed uh, um, uh, methodology by the House Democrats. And I think it was always designed simply to be damaging politically to Trump, even though they knew they were not going to succeed in removing him from office. And it doesn't seem to be having that effect. I mean, we're now seeing Trump's approval ratings at their highest level since he took office. Uh, his reelection numbers look uh, uh, you know, tough but pretty strong at the moment. And so I think this has totally backfired. And near as I can tell, uh, uh, you know, if you get away from the media bubble, I think most Americans are not paying much attention to this. Well, right. And I think it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, the, the Democrats have been for the last week trying to really pound the polling to push uh, the weaker sisters in the GOP Senate caucus, 70, 70, 70, 75 percent of American people want witnesses, so on and so forth. And this will be the definitive issue in uh, the November election for those senators who vote, those swing Republican senators in in uh, purple states that vote against witnesses. And there seems to be a recognition that that is um, sort of a cotton candy number. The idea that that nine months from now, my vote in Colorado or Maine is going to turn on whether you voted for witnesses in sort of a sham trial rather than on my own real economic security issues as elections usually turn is just folly. And and, and uh, those swing Republicans, at least as we uh, talk to, as we talk at this moment, don't seem to be buying that argument. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, I looked at, yeah, that number that says the 75, 78 percent of Americans want witnesses. I think that's a very weak number for, you said, a cotton candy number. I think that's right. I think what people hear is, uh, well, there's a trial going on. And what's a trial without witnesses? But Mm -hmm. I don't think uh, that the intensity of that number is very strong. And so I think most people, if the Senate uh, acquits uh, Trump here, you know, by the weekend, I think most people are going to shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, that's okay. let's move on with things. Uh, where the intensity is strong is in the Democrat establishment, such as it is, trying to stop Bernie Sanders from establishing himself as the front runner with a victory in Iowa on Monday. And uh, how do you think that's going for them? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I bet behind the scenes there's an awful lot of panic going on right now because Bernie is a dreadful candidate. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, you know, the, the the central parties have been weakened over the last 30, 40 years by various well-meaning but really counterproductive reforms. And, uh, you know, I can see Bernie running away with this. Uh, uh, you know, Bernie's got the enthusiasm. Uh, the vote against him is uh, fractured and splintered. And, you know, uh, but there's so much in his record that um, that the Trump campaign will roll out if he's the nominee. Uh, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see uh, various potentates in the Democratic Party organizing a stop Bernie movement. I bet that's happening right now. But if he wins Iowa, New Hampshire and looks like he's rolling along, uh, I think you're going to see uh, open panic. 
Now, the problem is, is um, he gets to California where he's polling very strongly right now and where he may sweep uh, the lion's share of the delegates from California because of the peculiar way delegates are picked out here in my crazy state. Uh, <laughs> he might be unstoppable. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting. He's, he seems to be dictating the terms of engagement right now in sort of a way that Trump was in the run-up to the Iowa caucus four years ago. And the two examples I cite, one is Joe Biden coming out and saying trans rights are, is the civil rights issue of our time is a direct response to Bernie touting his endorsement by a popular podcaster Joe Rogan. And, and secondly, Elizabeth Warren coming out with this proposal yesterday to uh, try to impose civil and criminal penalties for anyone who would uh, would would uh, distribute disinformation about voting online disinformation. So as defined by the government. Boy, this seems to be like this is direct response to Bernie. I got to get to the left of Bernie, Elizabeth Warren. And I got to take the opposite position of Bernie Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think that you can go back now and realize that what happened is, is that Bernie Sanders dragged the Democratic Party sharply to the left in 2016 with his very strong challenge of Hillary. And then Trump wins. And, you know, Trump winning uh, <laughs> just caused the left to lose its mind completely. It is all reminding me quite a lot of 1972. I mean, that's a long time ago now, but I'm old enough to remember that the, the Democrats hated Richard Nixon. And, you know, they were getting ready to run, guess what, a former vice president against him again, Hubert Humphrey. And then along came George McGovern. And people said, no, he's too radical, he's too extreme. And it turned out they couldn't stop him. And he went on to lose 49 states in the fall to Richard Nixon in that election. And I think, uh, although the, the, the demographics um, and the vote splits and nature of the country are very different now. I don't think Trump could win 49 states, but I think he could win 40 states against Bernie Sanders, if Sanders is the nominee, without uh, too much heavy lifting at all. It, it seems to me, especially with um, this being a, a census year, and so we have this additional layer of information about uh, where people are moving and uh, the exodus from the deep blue states, your crazy state, my crazy state of okay. Illinois, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, to uh, the southeast and the southwest, uh, Texas and a place like Texas and Florida poised to gain multiple seats. It seems to me that uh, with you know people voting with their feet, which is the biggest indictment of all, if you're a state that's net losing population like Illinois or California, and then against the backdrop of, of people being optimistic about the economy, being fairly happy with where things are, being optimistic about the future, and these candidates like Bernie and Warren proposing 70 percent marginal income tax rates and 55, 60 percent capital gains tax rates, wanting to essentially destroy the productive capacity of both labor and capital as their value proposition in 2020 seems to me just so wildly tone deaf. Uh, it's uh, it's remarkable to watch. You know, it's, uh, it, it's hard to overestimate the suicidal instincts people on the far left have. I mean, it's one thing to say we should really jack up income taxes on the rich when you have a Great Depression on, like under Roosevelt 70-some years ago, right? I mean, that makes some sense because, uh, you know, it stirs up envy when the economy is bad. But right now we have a, a strong economy, lowest unemployment rate in modern history just about. And as you mentioned, uh, the most recent Gallup poll survey a few days ago, and I think Gallup does a very good survey on these things, 
uh, shows that the optimism in the country is at its highest level in the last 20, 30 years. And between those and other numbers, you see that is usually a formula for reelecting a president, even a president who may be personally unpopular with Americans the way Trump is. He is Stephen Hayward, senior resident scholar at the Institute for Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute in San Fran and contributor to Powerline blog uh, with our friend John Hendraker over there. Always a must read powerlineblog.com. Stephen Hayward, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dan. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Okay, now we're going to need a business manager to help us avoid paying taxes. (laughs) Taxes. A tax is a terrible. Harry, liberal monster, <laughs> with big teeth. <laughs> and the only thing, the only thing that can stop the terrible tax monster is a Republican. <laughs> Who wants to be a Republican? Uh, of course, that's the great Michael J. Fox and his role as Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties from, well, from my generation, if you're a Gen Xer, and yours too, if you're a Gen Xer. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a classic episode talking to a kindergarten class about the taxes, just wonderful. And it uh, was called to mind by me because of this piece by friend of the show, David Marcus at The Federalist, how Alex P. Keaton predicted the new conservative movement. Al, are you an Alex P. Keaton conservative? I wasn't uh, as much of a uh, reflexive Nixon defender as he was on the show for sort of obvious uh, reasons, policy-wise, why I wouldn't be. You know, I mean, Nixon was a big government Republican, price and wage controls, EPA and the sort. Uh, but, of course, he was a, P, Alex P. Keaton was supposed to be a caricature on family ties, and so thus the Nixon, reflexive Nixon defenses. Uh, and the uh, the fun interplay, at least fun from my perspective, between Alex P. Keaton and his dad, who you remember if you watched the show, was like an NPR executive, local NPR executive, right? Uh, but David Marcus, talking about Alex P. Keaton, when the show launched in 82, and indeed for the following three decades, most conservatives in the media were very unlike Alex P. Keaton. The platonic ideal of a late 20th century conservative pundit was a, a George Will or a William F. Buckley. Both operated with a kind of outsider status, Buckley in particular, although still a conservative hero, always seemed to be operating from a defensive crouch. He stood athwart history yelling stop, famous uh, mantra of National Review. 
He looked for the conservative who is most electable. The mantra coming out of the 60s seemed to be, we will eventually lose, but we can lose more slowly. That was not the way of Alex P. Keaton, the first Gen X conservative. He was joyous and confident in his conservatism, a kind of Reaganite happy warrior, as you heard in that clip. It's a good representation of it. And it's interesting to note that this character was an iconoclast for supporting Reagan, even though in the show's third season, Reagan won no landslide against Monday, 49 states. Surely there were millions of Alex P. Keatons heading off to college or the workforce, yet in the eyes of Hollywood, this type was still a freak. You know, and again, the sitcom caricature bringing the suitcase to high school and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, he goes on to point out, Marcus, it turns out there were a lot of Alex P. Keatons. Yeah, like me. And just as the characters would be, they're now in their 40s, like me, and 50s, and for the first time taking institutional power within conservatism. The new energy that the Gen X conservative is bringing has everything to do with being countercultural. In fact, it might fairly be said that Gen X had no culture, only countercultures. The conservative of the past was of the past, always seeming to want to wind back the clock to the 50s. Again, thinking about Buckley standing athwart history, yelling stop. Back to some American ideal unsullied by the riotous 1960s. But the conservative contemporaries of the hippie boomers were in some ways ill-equipped to fight those who had bested them in defining a generation. You know, the full metastasization of the sexual revolution that was contemplated by the Frankfurt School 40 years earlier. That's my parenthetical remark. So since they were ill-equipped to fight those who had bested them in the 60s, Marcus goes on to argue it would fall to the children of the flower children to challenge the shibboleths of Woodstock. Every Gen X kid who grew up rolling his eyes at stories of communes and anti-war protests, who has a nostalgic disdain for Crosby, Stills, and Nash carries in him the essence of the new conservative. And my parents were not flower children by any stretch, even though, of course, they're boomers. But, uh, yes, there was a great appeal to Alex P. Keaton in there. And as much as uh, being a child of the 80s, you're part of the Reagan generation. um, The first sort of expression of that was Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties. It really was. I hadn't quite thought about it in this way until reading Marcus's piece, but thinking about my own childhood, that's, that's absolutely the case. So Marcus says, although we like to center Donald Trump in everything these days, what we see looking back to Alex P. Keaton and the almost adulthood of Gen X is that Trump is a manifestation of the new conservatism, not its creator. The pugnacious nature of the former latchkey kids, the last generation to play outside without a cell phone, lies at the heart of Trumpism. The question for conservatives used to be, how do we stop losing? And then it was, and now it's become, how do we keep winning? Uh, Marcus goes on to say, Gen X will not hold power for long. It's a tiny generation, and those born after 1980 are already installing themselves as the new arbiters. But with the kids, and by kids I mean most of my editors, writes Marcus about his editors at The Federalist, what the kids will inherit from Gen X is all about Alex P. Keaton. A winning smile, a joke, an anxiousness for the fray. The old conservative movement has given way, and in its place stands a generation willing to fight and unwilling to accept their parents. 1960s as the be-all and end-all of what America is. 
Yeah, and it's funny, too, because you think about this in the context of, uh, of the never-Trumpers. And a lot of those never-Trumpers are also of the Alex P. Keaton era. Think about, like, the, the Jonah Goldbergs of the world. But, uh, but they also harken back to, to the George Wills and the Bill Buckleys. And, of course, George Will is still around, and he's more or less a never-Trumper. Um, yeah, and they're, they're, so you, even if you were a contemporary, even if you were a Gen Xer it doesn't necess- and a conservative, it doesn't necessarily mean you've paid forward the Alex P. Keaton persona. But I think uh, Marcus is right. That, that is the persona, isn't it? The, the happy warrior with the pithy remark. An anxiousness for the fray. I think that's right. And I think that's that's good. It's um, attitudinally, even if you disagree with particular Trump policies like I do, Trump, a manifestation of that manifestation of the Reagan era uh, and this the new conservatism with Gen Xers more pronounced now than, of course, they have been previously as they're coming into their prime power years in their 40s and 50s. Yeah, I think it's a really good analysis. And uh, it was a fun time to grow up because of uh, uh, because of representations like Alex P. Keaton. Income tax you have to pay. Oh, that's not fair. Could I take a do-over? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Whoa! Whoa! Hold the phone. <laughs> no do-overs. Page four of the rule book says, and I quote. Alex, we're going to let Jennifer take a do-over. Here's the dice, honey. I won't stand for this. <laughs> this is a travesty. This is a sin against capitalism. <laughs> I'll be in the kitchen. You call me when it's my turn. Okay? The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and a very good piece in National Affairs, nationalaffairs.com, by Arthur Millick, who's a associate director of... Uh, Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. It's a, about preventing suicide by higher education. He writes, America's universities have been progressivism's most important asset. It's crown jewel. For over a half century, they've served as the left's R&D headquarters and the intellectual origin or dissemination point for the political and moral transformation of the nation. Universities are arguably the most important institution in modern democracy, no other institution has such power to determine the fate of democracy for good or for ill. And uh, as you could uh, infer from the title, Preventing Suicide by Higher Education, uh, Arthur Millick is arguing that uh, the power to determine the fate of democracy is mostly for the ill right now. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Robert Curry. He serves on the board of directors of the Claremont Institute. And he's the author of the book Common Sense Nation, Unlocking Forgotten Power of the American Idea, and a new offering, Reclaiming Common Sense, Finding Truth in a Post-Truth World. 
which is a, a, a fun little book. It's only about 100 pages, really good. Uh, and we're pleased to be joined by Robert Curry. Robert, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, first of all, do you uh, agree with uh, Arthur Millick's premise about the import of universities? Oh, gosh, it's, it's essential to, to both of my books, actually. Yeah, um, and, and so um, you, central to, to your book, uh, talking about common sense, is this uh, common sense realism of uh, yes. the philosophers that provided uh, some of the the uh, foundation for our founders that, that provided the foundation for this nation and how we have seen common sense realism undone. Thank you very much. What a, what a wonderful question. It goes to the heart of things. You know, you know who Lord Acton is. He's the man who yes. famously said, uh, you know, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. I mean, everybody knows that dictum, you know, which is really a statement of the founders idea. Well, when, when Lord Acton visited Harvard in the 1850s, he found that uh, the core of the curriculum for Harvard students, you know, they didn't have electives in those days, was common sense realism. And the juniors spent the whole year studying that philosophy. That was the philosophy of the founders, and that fact has been forgotten. You know, those funny words like unalienable rights and the emphasis on self-evident truths, all that came from the, from the philosophers of the common sense realism and who shaped the founders' thinking really inspired them with this wild and crazy idea that uh, the American people were capable of self-rule. And so, you know, this, so, so of course, the, um, in the, the, as you, you point out in your title, Finding Truth in a Post-Truth World, in this post-truth world, um, uh, everything can be redefined, and some things have no definition anymore, Re- have been redefined out of definition, essentially, as sort of paradoxical as that sounds. Uh, common sense, common sense realism, what is that? Oh, great. Well, what a wonderful question. Uh, Let me just say first, in the first part of your question, you know, common sense is what's under it. There's two things under attack at the universities. One of them is the founder's project. You know, know, it's agreed by the elite that, you know, the founder's ideas are outmoded and that, uh, you know, the country is in need of fundamental transformation and, you know, the, uh, the Constitution is, um, you know, is uh, derelict, and the, and the Declaration is just a bunch of ideas that are outmoded. That's being taught in the university. But the universities are also teaching something that's related, which is that we now live in a post-truth time, a post-truth era. In 2016, you know, um, Oxford Dictionary said, made post-truth the word of the year. And that's come from the universities, too. That Everything can now be redefined. And uh, no, there's no truth is, is, the, is what our kids are learning at the university. And, uh, and when we come back, I, I want to uh, just try to provide some form to this common sense realism, because it's an interesting discussion you have in your book about it and about the self-evident truths like you were referencing. Um, but but it seems like we we have to get uh, our handle around what that is in order yes. to share it. And so I want uh, you to help us do that uh, right after this. We're talking to Robert Curry, Claremont Institute uh, board member, as well as the author of the new book, Reclaiming Common Sense, Finding Truth in a Post-Truth World. We'll be back with more right after this.
fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Robert Curry, who's a board member of the Claremont Institute, and he's also the author of the new book, Reclaiming Common Sense, Finding Truth in a Post-Truth World. And we're just talking about, you know, we understand what redefinition looks like, redefinition of marriage, redefinition of sex. You can choose to be a boy or a girl. That's now a social construct. But getting back to where we used to be and arguably where we should be again, where we have this shared sense of, of common sense, something Thomas Paine, uh, you know, used to frame his thoughts. What is America's shared common sense if if it's something to which we should return? Well, the basic idea of common sense realism, that's a formal philosophy, by the way, is the same idea that, that you and I ha- use to conduct our daily lives. Common sense realism is the philosophy that points out that there are such things as self-evident truths that don't need to be and can't be proven, but just are, are how it is. You know, um, so that so that, you know, we live by self-evident truths. I mean, self-evident truth that human beings come in two kinds, male and female, uh, self-evident truth that, um, you know, you uh, you sure as heck better not uh, jump into the Grand Canyon holding onto an umbrella to see if it'll get you down down to the bottom safely. I mean, we live by common sense rules and we know things. Um, we, we are able to be human beings and we can reason because there are self-evident truths that form the basis of reasoning. So without self-evident truths, you know, we're lost in a world of changing definitions and and um, and uh, and, con- and complete mental confusion, which is exactly what the uh, the left has been promoting, the progressives have been promoting in the universities. Right. The idea that there are no self-evident truths. Founders thought there were, and they founded the nation on some self-evident truths. And, and, you know, and how this plays out in practice, the, the, the contrast between, you know, the, the brilliant theoretician, the uh, brilliant academic, and the wise doer. And you give right. uh, one great example of this from the Civil War, George McLennan versus Ulysses S. Grant. Well, everybody agreed that McClellan was brilliant, especially McClellan believed that. <laughs> uh, he, he failed to uh, use the Army of the Potomac to, uh, to win the war. But when Grant was put in charge, the war was soon ended successfully. And, you know, people couldn't understand Grant. They just, he was a mystery to people, and he still is. It's wonderful to read biographies of Grant. People are so puzzled by him because he's so plain. But the one thing that people would say about him was, well, he has a lot of common sense. And common sense is a winner in the real world over theoretical brilliance. Right. So we're living in, a, in an era uh, where there is a bit of a revolt against those technocratic experts because because those experts have been proven wrong on so many fronts. Those in charge of so many of our civic institutions have proven not only wrong, but uh, hurtful to the interests of, you know, the hoi polloi that they, uh, as we're discovering more and more each day, have such disdain for. And I wonder if maybe that could be a lever for a return to this common sense, not just that still exists among the unwashed masses, so to speak, but uh, a return to that sort of common sense with respect to the leadership of said civic institutions. That's what's going on in front of us right now. I mean, I published Common Sense Nation just before Trump ran. And imagine my astonishment when Trump ran as a common sense conservative. So my books have been published just before and just after that election. And, you know, what's happened is your question is so astute. I mean, 
the whole idea of the progressives is to uh, get rid of self-rule by common sense of the American people and replace it by rule of experts and bureaucrats. Well, I think we increasingly have had rule by experts and bureaucrats, and boy, have they messed things up. I mean, they, they've, had an, they've had the chance to show how great they are for about 100 years now, and boy, I mean, they've failed. In a sense, the progressives has, have failed as dramatically as the Marxists have failed in the countries that were set up according to Marxism. As we move towards progressivism and we have more and more of a post-constitutional order and more and more of a progressive order, things are doing worse. Yes, I mean, I'd, I'd like to be as optimistic as you are about that, but by the same token, they have they continue to move their flag from you know the postmodernism to its newest. Uh, manifestation, identitarianism, and now to the suppression of free expression and free thought. So, I mean, their march continues. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Thank you for telling me that I'm an optimist. I thought I was worried. (laughs) I'll go with your your, uh, diagnosis. uh, Speaking of relative, yes, right. (laughs) Do you, are are you sanguine about their failure in terms of accessing power based on uh, the failure to produce what they promise? Well, I don't know. It's a tough question. I've been asked this one before, and I'm not, and I don't feel that smart. But let me just say that it does seem that the American people have a tendency to let well enough alone until it gets. Sometimes things get a little bit uh, no longer well enough. I mean, World War II, we were completely unprepared. Argentina had a bigger army, you know, and uh, we were uh, unprepared and unwilling. But when when push came to shove, and the Americans came around and uh, saved the world, so. Um, uh, I think ours is a providential nation. I have a lot of faith in the common sense of ordinary Americans, no faith at all in the common sense of our uh, most of our leaders. I mean, you know, there's Clarence Thomas and there's, you know, a, um, you know Donald Trump and stuff. But, I mean, the, what you're mostly seeing on TV today is a leadership that is bereft of common sense. But, so they are making a mess of things. But I have, com- you know, my common sense neighbors – you know, they understand what's going on. So I'm not giving up on America yet. I don't think we should. That's why you and I, you do what you do, and that's why I wrote these books. Yeah, for sure. And and also, too, you know, we know how this ends for most people, which is in emptiness, right? Yes. The, if when you choose self-satisfaction over self-exploration, it's, it's not going to end well for you. And it, when it doesn't end well, then you have to figure out what to do next, and maybe it's to return to... Um, well, those principles that you're, you describe in your book. Well, the beauty of it is, you know, that we do in fact live by common sense. That's the wonderful thing. That's the wonderful thing. We live by common sense. Now, common sense has been driven out of the culture and the, and politics by the elite. But your ordinary American, you know, he operates his life by by, and he or she operates his life by common sense and does pretty well. That was really the idea the founders had. And um, and when when Tom Paine wrote that great book Common Sense, he convinced Americans of this wild and crazy idea that we could rule ourselves. Nowhere in the world were people ruling themselves. Everywhere there were monarchs, and it was hideous. Uh, and he made this wild common sense argument that we could rule ourselves. And you know, people sat down, and read that, and said, "Darn, you know, I think we can do this thing." It hadn't been done. There was no example of it. We were the Americans created the example, and that example. Change the world. I mean, even dictators now, you know, have their phony elections and stuff. Yeah. Keeping their hat to the founder. He is Robert Curry. He's a board member of the Claremont Institute, author of, well, Common Sense Nation Unlocking the Forgotten Power of the American Idea that he wrote just before Trump uh, was elected, and the new book, Reclaiming Common Sense Finding Truth in a Post Truth World, you should pick up. Robert Curry, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me on. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, building on our uh, conversation in the last hour about uh, National School Choice Week and what's happening at pre-K through 12 education around the country. Uh, there's the uh, failure to provide opportunities for uh, particularly minority children to access the kind of schools and education that will prepare them for success in life. And then there's the function of these institutions as nothing more than totalitarian re-education centers for the Marxist left. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. And uh, this is a topic we covered a couple of weeks ago on this show. I used Evanston Skokie suburban Chicago district as an example of what you might want to be looking out for in your children's schools. And I did pre-K through post-secondary, but really pre-K through 12. Uh, first week of February next week. That's uh, Black Lives Matter week. Yeah, Black Lives Matter week of action. Your kids' school participating? Well, one Brooklyn preschool is uh, Young Elementary, uh, a, 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 a PS fifty eight Carroll School in Brooklyn. Uh, parents of three and four year olds attending this public school, PS58 Carroll School in Brooklyn, uh, were uh, stunned by the new curriculum recently announced that will teach children that they can pick their own gender, three- and four-year-olds. One uh, father of one preschooler telling the New York Post, I was kind of horrified. They say they're trying to reduce racism and discrimination. To me, they're perpetuating it and fomenting a sense of victimhood that four-year-olds would never consider on their own. Right. Remember the playbook that I read from on this show, the op-ed from a couple of years ago, one of these Black Lives Matter race racketeers? Uh, people say, oh, it's too young to get to the children at three or four or five years old. No, it's not. That's in point of fact. That's when we have to get to them, you know, before they become racists. Because, of course, that's the disposition. That's what society will do to them. The uh, curriculum at this preschool based on the 13 principles of the movement for black lives. Uh-huh. An email to parents about the new curriculum was sent out last week by a teacher there, Rosie Clark. Quote, I'm lucky enough to work at this wonderful school where we strive to help our students understand the complex world around them and think critically about how they can participate in improving it. One of the ways I do that in my classroom is by exploring the 13 principles of the movement for black lives. Really, how think critically about the world around them, how they can meaningfully participate in it as a three and four year old. Uh, OK, uh, the 13 principles of the movement for black lives. Well, of course, principle number six, if you're uh, scoring at home, transgender affirming. Everybody has a right to choose their own gender by listening to their own heart and mind. Everyone gets to choose if they are a boy or a girl or both or neither or something else. And no one gets to choose for them. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Those opportunity scholarship programs can't come online in enough places fast enough, can they? This is the Dan Prof Show. 
far from the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. Oh, interesting piece in uh, Time Magazine from Ian Bremmer, who is uh, no fan of the Trump administration and its principled realist foreign policy, generally speaking. But uh, on the matter of the proposed Middle East peace plan, uh, he said, uh, uh, he wrote in Time Magazine, the plan is detailed and thoughtful. It emphasizes diplomatic engagement, on, uh, most surprisingly, one of the most unilaterally oriented of administration takes a multilateral approach to resolving one of the world's thorniest conflicts. He uh, uh, adds that by recognizing the harsh realities on the ground and leveraging the unique position of the U.S. in the Middle East, it might open a process that will reduce tension in the region. Based on my early assessment of the plan, it's an effort worth taking. And uh, Jared Kushner gave an interview with Christiane Amanpour on the occasion of the announcement of the plan had this to say. Perfect. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that today was a big accomplishment for President Trump, something that only he could have done. Uh, he met yesterday with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, but also with General Gantz, his opponent, in a time of very divisive politics in Israel where they can't agree on much. He brought the country together on what has been the most, de- most divisive issue. What he's also done is we've released an 80-page detailed uh, plan. In the past plans, you had the Arab Peace Initiative, which is a very good effort, which is about eight lines. And then you had past proposals, which were two to three pages of wordsmith documents, really talking about high principles. He also got Israel to agree for the first time to a state, and he got Israel to agree to a map. So what you've seen today is that President Trump's built a, a lot of trust with the state of Israel. He's done a lot of great things that have made Israel more secure and the relationship between America and Israel stronger. And what he's been able to do today is deliver for the Palestinians a pathway to a state, uh, a contiguous territory, and conditions uh, where they can earn their way to uh, their independence, their dignity, all these different things, along with a $50 billion economic plan that could make them a very, very thriving uh, state in the future. So it's a big opportunity for the Palestinians. And, you know, they have a perfect track record of blowing every opportunity they've had in their past. But perhaps maybe their leadership will read the details of it uh, stop posturing and do what's best to try to make the Palestinian people's lives better. And, and I got to say, it um, it's no small thing to have both Bibi and Benny Gans uh, support this. Benny Gans, uh, chief rival to Bibi Netanyahu, I applaud President Trump for his leadership and will do everything in my power to translate his plan into reality following the elections in Israel. Getting uh, political rivals to support the the plan. Um, and and it also gives lie to the say, oh, this is just Trump doing a favor for his uh, friend Bibi uh, amid all of his uh, legal and political challenges. I think it's a little bit deeper than that. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of Jewish News Syndicate, contributor to National Review, columnist for The New York Post, The Federalist, and The Jewish Week. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So your assessment of what uh, the Trump administration and Jared Kushner have uh, Authored. Well, they've put together um, a really interesting plan um, that even though um, the critics are right about one thing, um, it's not going to lead to peace because the Palestinians aren't interested. But they have put on record a formula that is 
rooted in realism and not fantasy, and that they deserve credit for. All the past peace plans that have been mooted by you know, past uh, administrations, Republicans as well as Democrats, have been based on the idea that if they pressure Israel enough and Israel gives up enough, that will magically make the Palestinians want their own independent state and wish to live in peace with Israel. And that was going to be you know, their reward. This plan is kind of going to different. It's offering the Palestinians a state, but it's not asking Israel to trade land for peace so much as it's asking the Palestinians to trade peace for land. They're giving them an opportunity to put aside this 100-year-old war that they're just addicted to. And the reason why Mahmoud Abbas and Hamas and Islamic Jihad were together while Trump was announcing this plan rather than Abbas going to the White House to talk to the Americans to start negotiating, is that all of them are still locked into this same mindset that has their identity inextricably tied up with this war on Zionism in Israel and this war on the idea of a Jewish state, no matter where its borders would be drawn. That's the rub. That's the problem. And instead of sort of enabling this fantasy that Palestinian leaders have always had, whether it's Arafat or Abbas, the Trump administration is saying, you know what? They think of this in terms of real estate, because they're all a bunch of former real estate guys. Is that you're, you're, you're on a, a, a property that is rapidly depreciating. Nobody's backing you anymore. The Arab world have, has abandoned the Palestinians. They're sick of their intransigence and their refusal to make peace. You know, this is your chance to have a state if that's what you really want, and we'll help you. We'll help you get it. We force the Israelis to say, okay, yes, you can have a state. The Palestinians are still saying no. But at least this gives them a reasonable path. And you're right to point out that both the main parties in Israel back this because there is a consensus in Israel that right now there isn't a peace there isn't a peace partner but as much as most Israelis would like there to be peace. And this offers a, a realistic formula. And if the Palestinians say no, then certainly there won't be peace. But the idea that this doesn't work is a lie. I mean, it, it's giving them a reasonable path. Per the, the remarks of Ian Bremmer that I read from his piece in Time, uh, it is noteworthy that other Arab states uh, have engaged, and, uh, and constructively so, with respect to the, the uh, development of this plan. That's absolutely right, and that's the most underreported aspect of this whole story. I mean, for days, even weeks, we were getting all these stories in the mainstream press about how Trump's just doing it because he wants to do Netanyahu a favor. And it's rightly said that kind of that doesn't really wash because the opposition party was for it too. Or that he was doing it just to secure support from evangelicals. Yeah, like evangelicals are gonna vote for are going to vote in November for for Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Right. No. The real story here is how the Arab world whether they're you know, cheerleading for this plan out in front, whether they sent people to be there in the White House, as some, some of the Gulf states did, they, they're not interested in being dragged by the Palestinians as they were in the, past, in, in the past into an endless war, which does them no good. They know Israel is an economic force in the region. It's a positive force in the region. They, they envy Israel. They like, but, but Israel isn't a threat to them. They know Iran is a threat to them, and they see Israel as an ally, either openly or under the table, to help protect the Arab and Muslim world against, you know, Iran or you know, well, fanatical Islamist groups like ISIS or Hamas or Hezbollah. That's the real story here. Palestinians—they're isolated. 
and nobody, so you know, nobody in the Arab world wants to hear this. And and so the and so the, the, an aspect of this seems to me that even uh, if the chances of this uh, being accepted are remote, that it's uh, it's an effort worth pursuing. Number one, because it's a reasonable uh, reality-based plan, different than other presidents have tried. So it's always nice to try a different angle of incidents to solve a problem. Number two. Because of the multilateral approach, at minimum, it's strengthening the bonds of trust between the U.S. and Arab states to act as a bulwark against Iranian expansionism in the region. I think that's very true. I think um, by acting in a way, you know, one of the one of the things, you know, you know, when you think about how Israel has expanded contacts with the Arab world, the Arab and Muslim world, um, Netanyahu should get a lot of credit for that because he's he's worked very hard in sort of expanding Israel's uh, diplomatic horizons. But the most credit for it belongs to Barack Obama because Obama scared the Saudis and a lot of these other states into the arms of Israel because he mm. his uh, his uh, you know, policy of appeasing Iran, of empowering I mean reaching it with the nuclear deal, um, really forced much of the Arab world to say, wait a minute, what is our priority here? Um, getting dragged into this endless, pointless war against Israel, or looking to a modern, prosperous, strong state to be an ally against the real threat in the region, which is Iran. And yes, the Trump administration has fostered, it's, it's really buttressed those ties. Now, it, it, it's not magic. It's not going to make everybody, you know, the lion and the lamb aren't going to lie down together. And, you know, peace isn't going to break out as long as there are enough radical Islamists who hate America, hate Israel, hate the Jews, and that scares some of those Arab governments. And the Palestinians, as I said, are just so locked into this no-win political culture that even if somebody like Abbas, you know, currently serving the 15th year of the four-year term to which he was elected, <laughs> um, even if he wanted to make peace, and there's no evidence that he does, none whatsoever, he already turned down more generous offers. <laughs> You know, he doesn't like these terms. Uh, in, in, 2000, in 2000, Bill Clinton and Ehud Barak offered much more to Yasser Arafat, and Arafat said no. He said no again in 2001. Ehud Omer and George W. Bush offered even a, a little bit more to Abbas himself in 2008. Abbas didn't even deign to give an answer. He walked away from the talks at Annapolis. Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, contributor to National Review, columnist for the New York Post, the Federals, and the Jewish Week. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and uh, at the top of the second hour we're talking to stephen hayward over at uh, powerlineblog.com i i mentioned congressional democrat death throes as uh, Schumer tried to bring Lev Parnas in as his guest today, and uh, Lev not allowed into the gallery because he's got uh, an ankle bracelet on, you know, because he's under federal indictment. So uh, just the the ridiculousness, the histrionics, and we didn't get this to this uh, on yesterday's show, but this is not because partly because the reviews were still coming in, and it's rather stunning the effort to again demagogue something into relevance. 
the Alan Dershowitz response to the simple question that has been answered ad nauseum, not just in the trial, but pre-trial for months and months on end, is a quid pro quo necessarily wrong? And, of course, the answer is no. A quid pro quo is what you do in foreign policy, what you do in politics generally. Is I thought it's the art of compromise, give to get. And so, of course, there are limits if the quo is the president commits a, an illegal act or something tantamount to an illegal act, and that would be illicit. Alan Dershowitz covered this all, sort of the multiple motives argument of the left, and we're, go- we're supposed to uh, obsess a- about uh, the mens rea, the motivation of President Trump. Was it a corrupt motive, the basis for the the uh, July 25th phone call asking for the investigation into Burisma or the cooperation with the Department of Justice with respect to Burisma and the Biden's corrupt motive or national security interests uh, in in terms of interdicting corruption and making sure that U.S. military aid would not go for corrupt purposes to a corrupt regime. This was all covered by Seculo. It was covered by Dershowitz. This idea that you're supposed to divine which portion of the motivation or what percentage of the motivation was national interest, what percentage of the motivation was electoral interest, and to the extent that, what, it's a preponderance of the latter, then that becomes an impeachable offense. And by that standard, every federal official, every politician, every president would have impeachment exposure. And so the pedestrian question read during the dreary Q&A they talk about boring Roman numerals off a tombstone. John Roberts reading questions from senators. And Dershowitz offers this explanation that's completely contorted by the punditocracy of the left on these cable news channels. I mean, some of the things that were said, most notably by former Clinton Spock's Joe Lockhart, it's just insane. Here's what Dershowitz said again, though, too, the question. Uh, Quid pro quo, anything wrong with a quid pro quo? The only thing that would make a quid pro quo unlawful is if the quo were in some way illegal. Right. Fairly straightforward. And Dershowitz continued. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. And that's the statement that, you know, had leftist heads popping off like Joe Lockhart. What I thought when I was watching it was this is un-American. This is what you hear from Stalin. This is what you hear from Mussolini, what you hear from authority, from Hitler, from oh all the authoritarian people who Hitler. rationalized, uh, you know, in some cases, genocide based on what was in the public interest. Um, it, it was a startling um, and I, I still can't believe he went on the floor of the Senate and, and made that argument. You know, Godwin's law that the longer an online conversation goes the uh, likelihood that Hitler will be invoked trends to one. We need a corollary to Godwin's law for these pundits on and hosts, for that matter, on CNN and MSNBC. 
about uh, how quickly Hitler will be invoked. I think as, as soon as the name Trump or anyone associated with defending Trump is invoked, the likelihood that Hitler will be invoked within the next 30 seconds trends to one. I mean, it's Alan Dershowitz is a genocide apologist. You heard what Dershowitz was saying. All of you in this chamber think that your election is in the public interest. Every politician does. And so if the president is doing something in his interest that he believes is in the national interest or the two are complementary, then that's not an impeachable offense. Sands, you know, committing a crime or something tantamount to it, which he already had qualified. Dershowitz, again, restating what he had argued in his opening argument, which I think is going to turn out to be his portion of the closing argument. To try to psychoanalyze a president, to try to get into the intricacies of the human mind, everybody has mixed motives. And for there to be a constitutional impeachment based on mixed motives would permit almost any president to be impeached. How many presidents have made foreign policy decisions after checking with their political advisors and their pollsters? If you're just acting in the national interest, what do you need pollsters? What do you need political advisors? Just do what's best for the country. But if you want to balance what's in the public interest with what's in your party's electoral interest and your own electoral interest, it's impossible to discern how much weight is given to one to the other. And that's that was the point. That's the point he's making. It's a mixed motives argument, and it's a whole uh, psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis of a, of a president's motivations as the basis for impeachment, rather than the actual conduct, what we know to be true based on the decisions that were made and the implementation or lack thereof of those decisions. That's what he was talking about. Not you know something is in the national interest because Trump says so which is how it was purposefully and absurdly misinterpreted by the likes of Joe Lockhart. I mean, in the most shameful, really vile ways, Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, honestly. We may argue that it's not in the national interest for a particular president to get reelected or for a particular senator or member of Congress. And maybe we're right. It's not in the national interest for everybody who's running to be elected. But for it to be impeachable, you would have to discern that he or she made a decision solely on the basis of, as the House managers put it, corrupt motives. And it cannot be a corrupt motive if you have a mixed motive that partially involves the national interest, partially involves electoral, and does not involve personal pecuniary interests. And the House managers do not allege Right. That, that's un-American. That's not un-American. That's positively American. And it's positively consistent with the intentions of the framers as memorialized in those impeachment clauses that uh, Dershowitz has explained over and over again over the last couple of days. What's un-American is the smear jobs and the lightness with which political hacks like Joe Lockhart throw names like Stalin and Hitler and Mussolini around. That's what's on American. This is the Dan Prof Show.
You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. It's National School Choice Week. Uh, talked a little bit about it earlier in the show. Going to pick up our discussion on school choice again with uh, a case we've talked about on this show. This is the case of uh, Espinoza versus the state of Montana. Kendra Espinoza, a single mom with two daughters, wants to send her, wants to avail herself of a tax credit program in Montana, send her kids to a school that, uh, well, uh, comports with what she believes is in the best interest of her kids rather than the school that they're otherwise dictated to attend. This is a story that repeats itself all over the country. And with respect to these school choice programs, you know, everything is painstaking. You would have thought that uh, the Supreme Court decision in the Zellman case almost two decades ago now that upheld the Cleveland school choice program and uh, did so the court holding that, look, if as long as the resources are in the parents' control, in other words, the resources are attached to the family or the child, the student, and the parent is making the decision, uh, a, a secular school secular public, secular private versus religious affiliated, then it's not violative of the Establishment Clause. Well, we have another situation here uh, where the Blaine Amendment at the state level is being challenged. The Blaine Amendment, uh, named after James G. Blaine, who was a Catholic bigot, uh, and a United States senator, suggests no public resources can go for uh, religious ends. And, of course, this has been interpreted by uh, secular politicians and anti-school choice proponents uh, to mean no public money to support sending a child to private school. So this continues to be the rub, and it may be the last gasp of the Blaine Amendments nationally, and that would be a happy day if the court can see its way clear to accomplish that. For more on the topic, in this case in particular, pleased to be joined by Dale Chu, who's a senior visiting fellow at the Thomas Fordham Institute and uh, somebody with a, a background in education, his own self, which we'll get into. Dale, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, wh- why don't we just start with your handle on the Espinoza case and, and why uh, this matter wasn't uh, resolved with the decision I mentioned from uh, uh, almost two decades ago, the Zelma decision upholding the Cleveland School Choice Program. Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer uh, to, to that question is that um, – the, the, the issue of aid um, going to religious schools or, you know, aid going to parents who then select religious schools, however you sort of parse it, is um, it, it's deeply polarizing. Um, and there's, there's some real, real deep-seated emotions attached to, the, to, to this issue. So that's, I think that's why it continues um, to this day, um, though I think Zelman was, uh, you know, was a huge step forward uh, on this front. Uh, and that brings us, you know, now, fast forward to the Trinity case a couple of years ago um, to Espinoza before the court today, and we'll hear a result um, hopefully later this summer. Uh, I think, um, I mean, it, it, to, to me, it's remarkable, right? I mean, this is, I mean, the grand scheme of things, this is about 40, 50 years of time where we have essentially shifted from a, a posture in this country in terms of viewing aid to religious schools as an outright violation of the First Amendment. And here we are, fast forward to 2020. And the court is weighing 
Blaine amendments, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, as um, as a potential impediment uh, uh, to you know to uh, the free exercise clause. I mean that's I mean there, it's hard to overstate what a remarkable shift uh, and and progress that, uh, that that's happened over over a relatively short period of time. And in the piece that you uh, write on the case for the Fordham Institute, uh, a very good piece, you, you make the point that the argument of the opponents is sort of specious on its face so because it starts from a premise that there's such a thing as values-neutral education, and uh, you know that should be a punchline to anybody who any, knows anything about what's happening in K-12 school systems in this country. That's exactly right. Um, you know, I think that it's it's it's, a, it's frankly it's a myth, uh, and also you know part of the title of my piece that that there's this, even this idea of values neutral schools, values neutral education. Actually, even the idea of the idea of it, I, I might argue, is is dangerous, uh, especially in this day and age, where you know for a variety of reasons society seems more polarized. Uh, than ever, well, we have less faith in our institutions than you know that at any time I think in recent memory. Um, we we need schools to uh, have clear values, clear mission, clear goals uh, with their students, and I think part of that is uh, making sure that um, our students uh, are instilled with uh, strong values so that they can. Um, uh, be good stewards of, of sort of the aspirations of our country and, and, and also um, be, be good citizens going I, forward. I want to pick that up uh, when we come back, uh, the, the idea of what K-12 education should look like, what schools should look like in the 21st century, public or private, public and private. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dale Chu, Senior Visiting Fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. We'll be back with more right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Dale Chu. He's a senior visiting fellow at the Thomas Fordham Institute. We were talking about the Espinoza case versus the state of Montana that's before the high court will be decided before their term ends in June of this year. And uh, also, Dale, just a, a, a little bit of your background as an educator and a successful one, uh, uh, including uh, as a principal, so educator, teacher, as well as a administrator. And, and I wonder, with that background, how you see K-12 through education changing in the 21st century. What changes should happen? A, a friend of mine who's a former state senator in Illinois always is want to say, you know, we run the school system like Harry Truman is still president. You know, the, the school day is set up for parents with like uh, the idea, you, you know, two thirty, three o'clock, the, the, the idea mom is at home waiting for the kids. And that's not the case anymore. Uh, the way that uh, we sequence sciences in many high schools, the way that we sequence languages in many K through 12 systems is an anachronism from a time that, uh, uh, we know, based on the evidence, is no longer applicable. So th- how does K-12 through need to reform itself to uh, incorporate all that we know now about how children best learn and about, as you were saying before the break, about how to present uh, educational options that comport with various value systems of various families in our society? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think what, what sort of 
people don't talk about it as much, but the truth is the matter is that we Americans don't all believe in the same things, right? right. Um, yet we still we still live in this society, as you as you correctly point out, Dan, where by by and large, um, you as a parent as a family um, really have little choice. You're you're assigned to the school that's sort of you know residentially closest to you, and um, you know the idea that um, that school that you're you're geographically assigned to is going to align with your values and beliefs um, as a family. And for for every you know family that attends a particular school, I think it's just it, it's outdated, it's mistaken. Um, and so I think certainly one of the uh, the big things in terms of looking towards the future of of public education, of K twelve education, I should say, in this country, is to we have to figure out a way I think to break to break that stranglehold. We have to provide families more options because this idea that we're going to just pretend that schools are values neutral and one school can meet the need of every kid. I, I, I just think it's, it's just a fantastical notion. Well, and also too, I mean, with the, as you were describing the, um, the, the pace at which the school choice movement has picked up steam over the last uh, couple of decades and, 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 and in popular culture too, everything from waiting for Superman to a movie out this year, Miss Virginia, about the effort to successfully get uh, opportunity scholarships in the District of Columbia and the continued failure of big K through 12 systems in our big cities. It almost demands systemic reforms the question is, uh, it seems to me, a matter of political willpower, not so much is it, uh, is it even so much an intellectual debate anymore. You know, there's a real irony here uh, when you're talking about sort of the politics behind this, Dan, is if you just look at, um, you know, the, the current aspirants, you know, for the 2020 presidential nomination on the Democratic side, um, by and large, um, they've come out very, very strongly um, against choice publicly. Um, and but if you look at either their, their personal choices when it came either to their own kids or their own educational background, uh, for the most part, many of them elected to choose private schools. So there's a and, there's Eliz- a and, Eli- and Elizabeth here. and Elizabeth Warren lied about it. Elizabeth Warren got caught lying about it. She's sending her son to private school after the grade after the fifth grade and saying you know, to, to, that both her kids went to public schools. It's very interesting. And this goes to Obama sending his kids to Sidwell Friends and the Clintons and the Gores and in Chicago, the Rahm Emanuel's of the world, all send their kids to these private schools, the best schools available. But they're happy or content for political reasons to let kids languish in schools and school systems, we know will fail them because they've been failing uh, for multiple generations. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's sort of like this this choice for me, but not for the yes. principle, you know, operating here, and it's it, it, it's unfortunate because the by and large, it's sort of, with this sort of with this particular outlook, um, the ones who sort of end up getting the short end of the stick tend to be um, low-income minority populations in this country. I mean, it's just it's it's just an injustice, I think, across the board. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's it, 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 it's it's problematic. Well, you know, it's it's funny to think about, you know, with a little bit of historical perspective as we're talking about the school choice movement, how much has been accomplished uh, over a relatively short period of time, including at the high court level. Now think about that parallel to Brown v. Board of Education and how little has been accomplished in the six decades since that decision was rendered when it comes to, again, the the biggest school systems in the biggest cities in this country. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you know, for as much progress as has been made in some in, in some of these large cities, there's still a long ways to go. Um, and it's not that hard to you know, you can pick any pick Chicago, pick Los Angeles, pick Indianapolis, pick any sort of these cities, and it's not far to find two schools. Um, you know, maybe within a mile or two within one another, but because there's an artificial line that sort of um, artificial wall that sort of divides these schools, you often have sort of like this, this really extreme sort of haves and have nots um, where parents are left with no option um, unless they're of means. I mean, if you have money, um, right. you've got school choice, right? Um, and so, I mean, in my mind, I, I, it's hard for me, I think for, it's hard pressed for anyone to think of any issue where that, that's that, that's that's more of an injustice than you know than the, the sort of the setup we have today. How how important is the open enrollment movement? Uh, this is something Andrew Campanella, the president of National School Choice Week, wrote about recently. Thirty four states that have open enrollment, voluntary meaning districts can opt in, but the idea is that you're not relegated by geography to the public school closest to you or the public school that you're, you know, whose zone you're in, you can go to other public schools. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a huge issue. There's a lot of potential with open enrollment. I mean, it tends to be less polarizing, uh, less of a lightning rod than when you talk about vouchers uh, and some of these other uh, savings account, education savings accounts and these other mechanisms. Um, I think open enrollment, um, Part of the, the challenge in the 30-plus states that currently have it is that, for the most part, um, uh, depending on the law in a particular state, um, their districts can place restrictions in terms of which students they decide to accept. They can even set tuition. He is Dale Chu, Senior Visiting Fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Dale, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. It's time for Dan Prof's parenting tips. Whoa, Dan Prof's parenting tips. Whoa, tell your kids to shut up and listen to him. Your child. Yeah, for those not familiar with this uh, little segment, a recurring segment on the show, those who can't or, in my case, don't teach, right? So I don't have children, so I teach. And uh, the parenting tip today comes to us uh, prompted by this uh, survey of a 1,000 British parents that finds the average parent spends a mere five hours per week commuting communicating face-to-face with their children. Just five hours per week communicating face-to-face with their children. This uh, study also found that uh, part of the explanation is that the average youngster starts to really avoid his or her parents. You know, mom and dad are no longer cool. I want to be left alone. Around the age of 13. Uh, Okay, so what's been the response? Well, part of it is uh, some parents don't want to spend any more than five hours face-to-face with their children, apparently, because... Uh, only 54% said they would love to spend more time with their children. So why don't we just, we'll leave the 46% alone for a second and just focus in on the 54%. How are they approaching trying to spend more time with kids that are trying to avoid spending more time with them? Hmm. Well, 
They're trying to take an interest in their children's favorite activities as a way to reconnect. Hmm. For example, uh, 20% of parents have learned how to play the video game Fortnite. 40% say they have gotten involved in their child's hobbies. Another 33% say they've listened to their children's favorite bands or musical, musical artists in order to bond with them. Well, as soon as you start doing that is when the kids are going to drop those things as uncool if mom or dad are taking an interest in trying to communicate to me about, uh, you know, rock music or video games or, I don't know, Pokemon, uh, whatever. Um, the, the, the parent parent should be broadening horizons, challenging their kids opening doors they hadn't considered because you know you know more so rather than uh you know joining them and listening to lizzo and some god-awful rap why not introduce them to bach or beethoven rather than reading harry potter novels to communicate with them if this is even right but you get the gist uh why not uh, open their mind to shakespeare for example, certainly you could do that as a teenager or a favorite poet or a favorite author of yours. Uh, one, so make them read, uh, start reading some of the classics in American literature rather than just trying to pal around with them by consuming some of the same bills that they consume. And that's a Dan Prop guarantee, too. Thanks for joining us on the Dan Prop Show. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.